0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the show about Titanic. My name is Edwin, and I'm your host. Today, we're interviewing Stephen Cameron from Belfast, Ireland. On this episode, we'll be talking about the origins of Titanic. So let's get this interview started. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the show about Titanic. This is Edward, and so far I'm pretty excited to be meeting you, Stephen. Um, So when I first heard about you, I'm like, Stephen Cameron, that sounds familiar. And I'm like, wait, are you related to the movie maker James Cameron?
1: No, I'm not. Although my father was called James Cameron. Uh, But no, I'm no relative at all, sadly, of, of James Cameron of Titanic fame.
0: Yeah, so... Can you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the Titanic?
1: Okay. I was in the Northern Ireland Fire Service, and I was a station commander looking after two fire stations. And I really had no interest in anything to do with the sea until one day my daughter, who was 11, and uh, at school, her teacher was doing a local history project. Sometimes she would do it on the Irish Famine, sometime on the First World War. But this time she was doing a project on Titanic. And my daughter would come home with material that she'd done in school. And to help her, I bought a book in Belfast. Uh, it was actually Robert Ballard's book, Discovering Titanic. And I made the mistake of picking the book up and reading it and I got totally hooked on the whole thing. I ended up, along with another lady, of co-founding and starting what is now the Belfast Titanic Society. And I met uh, several survivors of Titanic. And I have written uh, three books, and had three books published, uh, two of them about Belfast and Titanic.
0: That's really nice. So which survivors did you have time to meet?
1: I met Edith Haysman in London. Um, She was, I think, about 13 at the time the Titanic sank. And I also met Dean, who was the baby who was on Titanic. She was only a few weeks old, and she was actually put into a canvas bag and hauled up the side of the uh, rescue ship, the uh, Carpathia. And she had come to one of our Titanic Society dinners in Belfast. And after the dinner, she was being shown back to her bedroom and was going up the stairs towards her bedroom whenever she tripped and fell and made a terrible big cut on the front of her leg. So she was taken to the hospital and the nurse came out in the hospital and said, hmm, yes, we can fix that, but there's a wait of about two or three hours. So the lady who was with her said, do you know who this lady is to the nurse? I said no. And the lady said, well, she was on Titanic. She survived Titanic. 30 seconds later, a doctor, a wheelchair, a porter came out and she was taken in right away. So sometimes maybe it helps to say that you were on the Titanic.
0: (laughs) That's kind of funny. (laughs) And also, could you tell us a bit about Carpathia?
1: Yes. When Titanic hit the iceberg, She sent out her first call for help, which was CQD. And she sent that out several times, and then they changed it to SOS. There was a ship close by that they thought was the Californian, that they saw Titanic but thought uh, that they were sailing off in another direction and didn't listen to the messages. The Carpathia ship was about 60 miles away from Titanic, when she got the, the, heard the Morse code radio message to say that the Titanic was sinking, her captain, Arthur Rostrand, very quickly uh, took control of the situation. He got all the power of the engines, turned back into the engines, turned off the heating, turned off all sorts of things, and came as quickly as he possibly could towards where Titanic was. Now, it would take him four hours to get to Titanic, and by the time he arrived, all that was left was, was the people in the lifeboats. Titanic had gone. But he rescued everybody, all those 705 or 708 people. Uh, he rescued them all uh, on his ship.
0: Um, it's kind of odd on how, like, such a big ship can sink. Could you tell us um, why was it unsinkable?
1: Right. Now, Harlan and Wolf, who built the ship, never said that the ship was unsinkable. White Star Line didn't think I don't think said it was unsinkable but the British press decided because of all of these watertight bulkheads that were inside the ship, they said the Titanic was practically unsinkable. What happened was the Titanic bounced along the side of the iceberg. It put a lot of small holes in the iceberg Okay, for about 300 feet. Now, the problem was that those small holes, if you added up the whole area of those small holes, they were no bigger than a door in your living room. All right? But because it was over such a large, a large area, what happened was that the front, the first compartment filled up with water. Because the bulkheads didn't go right the way up to the deck, water would spill over into the second one. It would fill up it would spill over into the third one. A bit like, you know, like a nice cube tray. Yeah. Water would spill from one to the other, to the other, to the other. And Titanic could have survived with about three bulkheads open to the sea, but not with as many as there was five bulkheads. And Thomas Andrews, who was the representative of Harlan Wolfe, realised very, very quickly that sadly Titanic was, was going to sink. And he said it would sink in about two hours, and it did. It was just over two hours, and it sank.
0: Yeah, it's kind of sad on how a really big ship brought, like, 2,224 passengers, I think, and less yeah. than half of the passengers were turned back safely.
1: That, that, was, that was just the way things happened, in those, sadly. and no, sadly. I mean, it, it, it really, when you look back at it, there were some terrible things that happened. What happened on Titanic was they allowed, first of all, the first-class passengers up onto the deck. And they were allowed to go in, the ladies were allowed to go into the lifeboats. Then the second class were brought up, and they were allowed into the lifeboats. And the third class people were kept back to the very end. And by the time some of them came up to the deck, all the lifeboats were gone. And some of them had had on their very thick uh, cork life jackets. And a lot of them jumped into the water. And the trouble was that whenever they jumped into the water that the life jacket would have raised up and put their head back and would have broke their neck for them and they would have been killed right away. And other ones were cobbled up, maybe in just their nightie or their pyjamas and they would have been freezing. And it was just so sad that they were kept back. And that's the way it was done, sadly, in those days. Whereas today, nowadays, everybody is allowed off at once.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like... It's unfair on how you only let um, women and children only. But if they had space, they would let men.
1: That's right, and that's that's what they started to do. They started to allow just women and children away first, and uh, sadly, some. I mean, some men did get in. There was one man called Arthur Pusen, who was a yachtsman. And this lifeboat was full of people. It was going down. And somebody shouted back up to the officer on the deck, there's no sailor on board this. There's no seaman on this lifeboat. And the man turned around, the, the officer turned around, and he said, could anybody help with this? And this, this man, Colonel Pushton, came forward, and he said, well, I'm a yachtsman. And the, the officer said to him, well, if you can go slide down the rope into the lifeboat, you can go ahead. And he went ahead. Another man then went into a lifeboat called Bruce Ismay. Who was the, the the chairman of the White Star Line and he got into one of the very last lifeboats and sat there and everybody felt that that was wrong that he should have gone down with the Titanic and he was a card for, for getting on board
0: the lifeboat um and uh, I think this is true but I think they had like a little um newspaper um, comic that had people um, like people are saying look at Disney look at Disney look at Disney look at disma.
1: Yeah, that is very, very true. Bruce Ismay, really, really, uh, the rest of his life, he suffered from from getting into the lifeboat. Um, he 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 ended up. He died in Ireland, uh, in County Galway, in Ireland. And he 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 really, really, as you said, there was more and more cartoons in the paper about uh, Bruce Ismay getting into the lifeboat and how wrong he was to do that. Yep, no, you're right.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like someone just was very important, and they just got into the last lifeboat. Like that'll be pretty mm-hmm. odd.
1: Mhm. Well, the the one person that I feel should have been put into a lifeboat was Thomas Andrews. Yeah. Thomas Andrews was from a well known family here in Northern Ireland or in Ireland. Um, and he was um, a personal assistant and managing director of Harland and Wilson and had been there from the very first nut and bolt and rivet was put into Titanic and he should have, along with the logbook which had all the details of all the sailing and everything that happened up to date he should have been placed in a lifeboat for the inquiry uh, that was going to happen afterwards but it was decided no, that he wouldn't that wouldn't happen uh, and sadly I think he should have been put into the lifeboat
0: yeah, I agree with you too. because he's like, he helped people into lifeboats, and he gave life jackets out, but he didn't put on his own.
1: That's right. He he. Uh, There's a girl called Mary Sloane um, who was a stewardess on board the lifeboat, and he, he stopped her and told her to put her life jacket on. Uh, he helped. He was throwing chairs and anything that would float he was throwing into the water so people could try and hold on to Um, and he made no attempt to to save himself, he actually stood beside, in one of the the, the inside rooms where there was a big painting of ships going into New York and he stood beside that uh, just looking at that and that was where he's supposed to have died uh, looking at this picture there was another thing that happened um, might be of interest to you a uh, gentleman called Morgan Robertson, uh, 20 years before Titanic, wrote a book called Futility. And in the book, he wrote a story about a ship called the Titan, which was T I T A N. And Titanic was T I T A N I C. And he said that this ship, the Titan, was sailing from England to America and it crashed into an iceberg and it could have called for help. Uh, and a rescue ship called the Majestic came to help them, and the captain of the Majestic was Edward Smith, who was the captain of Titanic. And he wrote this book about 20 years before Titanic, and people never thought anything about it until after Titanic sank, and, oh, everybody then got very interested in the story of Morgan Robertson's book about call futility.
0: Can you tell us little bit about like how many people did it um, go in to build the ship?
1: I mean when, when the and Wolff started off um, they started off with very few men and built it up and built it up and built it up and in Titanic's time there was around about 15,000 people employed on building the ship and we still have some of the books available to show who was working in the shipyard but they don't they didn't have a register for each ship and who worked on each ship. Uh, you could maybe be um, a painter, and you would finish work on one ship. You'd be then taken onto the next ship, and you'd be a bit painting then and go on to the next ship as well. Uh, and it would take uh, it would take some considerable time for the for the um, the ship to actually been built. The keel for uh, for Titanic was laid down um, in 1908. And that was the keel for, for Olympic, the first ship of the three. Uh, 1909, the keel for Titanic was lo- was laid down, um, and they were then built over those next few months, and eventually, uh, come, excuse me, April 2nd of April 1912, Titanic would be uh, handed over to the White Star Line, and she would leave Belfast. She was one of three ships. The first ship was the Olympic. Then there was the Titanic. And then the last ship in the three series was the Britannic. And some old joker in the shipyard nicknamed them the Beloved, which was Olympic, which William Perry, the chairman, loved. The Damned, being Titanic, which sank on her maiden voyage. And the Forgotten, being Britannic, which was, as soon as she was completed, the First World War had started and the government brought her into service in the First World War and she was lost during the First World War.
0: Um, could you tell us a bit more about Edward Harland?
1: Edward Harland had been born in England, and he had been um, gone round various shipyards in England. His father was a doctor. He was very, very interested in ships and shipbuilding. And in Belfast, there had been a small shipyard built where Harland Wolf is today, and. Edward Harland was asked over to become the first manager of that shipyard. Uh, and he was, he was actually quite a hard man. Um, he didn't allow the workforce to smoke. He didn't like them to talk unless they were uh, having their tea breaks. Um, and he would walk around and make sure everybody was doing their work. He helped to buy the shipyard from a guy called Robert Hickson. And uh, it was a gentleman called Gustav Swabe, who was a German who lent Edward Harlan money to buy the shipyard off Robert Hickson. It would cost £4,950 in 1861. Then uh, Gustav Swabe suggested to Edward Harland that he should take on a partner, and that partner was Swabe's nephew called Gustav Wolff. So Wolfe was taken on, first of all, as an assistant Edward Harland and then eventually as a full partner to Edward Harland and the shipyard of Harland and Wolfe was established uh, in Belfast and it grew and grew and grew from that Swabe, the German had contacts all round the place and he knew a gentleman called Thomas Esme who had bought over and was running a White Star Line and he introduced Thomas Esme to the White Star Line and to to um harland and wolf and harland and wolf would practically build all the ships for the white star line from uh, the very first ship that was built number 72 and they would build all the ships right the way up until uh, just after titanic Uh, and they would wouldn't build ships for anyone else uh, but they would build exclusively for the White Star Line, and at one stage Harland and Wolf were the biggest shipyard in the world, and they were selling and building the most number of ships over several years.
0: Yeah, that's cool on how that worked. Could you um, explain a bit more about White Star Line and how it functioned?
1: Yes, the White Star Line uh, had been a, a shipping company that operated between uh, Great Britain and Australia. And it went into, it sort of got into all sorts of trouble. And eventually Thomas Esme would, would make a bid for a thousand pounds and buy over this flag of what they called the flag of the White Star Line. And he would try and reinvent the whole thing. And it was through his friendship with Gustav Swabe that he would turn round and go to Harland and Wolfe and then have the ships built in Harland and Wolfe. And practically all the ships that the White Star Line would have built Harlan Wolf all ended with the letters IC Olympic, Titanic, Britannic, Germanic, and so on and so on and so on. And for years and years and years, they would build all the ships for the White Star Line.
0: Um, and here's my final question, um, okay. but I still have one more question. This is the final <laughs> question that I have. Okay. Um, so... Was there an iceberg that really sank the Titanic?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I saw a program after, um, a few years ago, and it was about the icebergs coming down from Greenland and down the North Atlantic. And it was an American Air Force jet flew over it with with a, a missile and launched a missile at this massive iceberg that was floating down. And it just carried on as if nothing had happened because an iceberg is like nothing. It's not like an ice cube. This is like hard, hard, solid concrete that if you hit an iceberg, um, it's gonna you're going to come off worse than the iceberg is. And yes, I believe that Titanic did strike the iceberg and that it was the cause of it and that ice had been flowing so much further south that particular year. And also... The White Star Line uh, gave direction to their crews to go as fast as you possibly could and try and avoid anything that you see. So they were going as fast as they possibly could when eventually they saw the iceberg dead ahead and they gave the order to turn the helm over and to reverse the engines. And I honestly believe that reversing the engines had they had to turn stop turning the engines and then turn the, the propellers the other way around to try to get the ship to turn to the left hand side and because we were reversing the engines it took longer to get it to turn and that's why it scraped along the side of the iceberg.
0: So thank you stephen for being on the show about Titanic.
1: It has been my pleasure and I have enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for joining us today and I hope you subscribe to the Show About Titanic wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Nate, who hosts another podcast that you might like called The Show About Science. See you on the next episode of The Show About Titanic. Bye for now.